Welcome to Not True But Useful, a podcast from Cheek by Jowl. My name is Lucy Dawkins, and in these episodes, I've been chatting to the company's artistic directors, Declan Donnellan and Nick Ormerod, about their work in the theatre. And in this series, we've been pondering questions that you've put to us about the art of making a play. Hello, Declan. How are you doing today? Very well, Lucy. So today we're going to turn to another question from a listener. And this is a really great question for specifically this week, because you've just come back from what you call going to the woods, which is where you disappear off with a company into the middle of nowhere, where there's very little Wi-Fi reception. And you basically research the show in three dimensions for a week before you start rehearsals. And you're working on Life as a Dream in Madrid at the moment. How was the woods? How did it go? Well, it went incredibly well because I didn't know any of the actors and we were all, all strangers. And it worked incredibly well. I mean, it's, it's very moving to see what happens when you put the actors into nature with a lot of silence. And they had a ball of a time. And they'd show us the, the attitudes that they did. And it was, it was really fantastic. Well, this is a... You've just mentioned a word that is the word that we're going to talk about today, which is an attitude. Mm. It's something that's come up a few times before in our past podcast, but an etude is essentially a sort of theatrical experiment, right? Yes, yes. It's where you create a kind of structured improvisation for a scene mm-hmm. to sort of work out about a human dynamic that's at play somewhere in the middle of the play, something that is important about the way that that social structure works or that those relationships work or that a particular environment in the play works. And you sort of give something to the actors, you give them a prompt, and they go away and they make something for you. You come back and see it, and then you use it to help you inform your thinking about the play. Yeah, that's exactly what we do. Great. And so our question today is about attitudes. How do you set up an attitude with a, a group of actors? And this question comes from John Pashley, who says, how does Declan decide which attitudes he asks the actors to prepare when you go into the woods? He says, I've loved the examples he has given about work that companies have produced, and I'd be interested to hear the kind of prompts and questions and provocations they were responding to. So how do you fire up the actors to do an attitude? Well, for example, we're doing Oedipus, as you know, in Romania, and um, I asked them to do an etude about what happened the night when Dracasta gives a little baby Oedipus away because she has the child exposed on a hillside in order to defeat the prophecy that they've heard. And we had a wonderful actress, Ramona Dragulescu, who, was playing, um, who plays Dracasta, and she had this little bundle in her arms, and it was unexpectedly upsetting because it made me realise that Oedipus isn't the only person with a guilty secret in the play. Jocasta has a huge guilty secret, which is she gave up her child to be put to death in probably, I think, the most cruel way imaginable. They don't want the child to live. She's been persuaded or what have you by the husband or forced by the husband to give up the baby, but still the trauma of giving up the baby. I don't think you'd ever recover from it, or if you did recover from it, you could only recover from it by going mad in a way because you'd have to cut something off so basic in yourself. She can't ever be fully available because she's got this terrible guilty secret. So one of the things you clearly do is identify to the actors a hunch about a moment you've got, like this crucial moment where Mm. Jocasta goes from holding a baby to not holding a baby anymore. Exactly. Mm. Um, So it sounds like one of the things you do is you get everybody together and you talk 
quite evocatively about a moment. Crucially, I think what people might not understand when you talk about etudes is that you don't direct them, right? Oh, no, no. You give them a series of prompts and then you and Nick go away. Mm. Um, And then you come back and you see what they've made. Sometimes they'll take hours making something to show Mm -hmm. you. Uh, Sometimes they'll go off and find props and bits of costume. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes they'll put you in a different location. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes they'll tell you to go away again and come back. But what is that thing that you give them? What are the ingredients that prompt a good attitude? Well, I don't know, it's, it's reading the play and understanding there are things that I don't really understand or feel about it or a hunch that it's going to prove very powerful and important in a way that I don't understand. It's crucial that I don't write the etudes because the whole point of them is that they're to surprise me. Um, and also, it's a valuable moment for when I can't talk anymore. You know, as people who've <laughs> weathered one of these podcasts can imagine, I, I can talk quite easily. And it's, it's quite good if they just have silence from me for a bit and they're, they're thrown on their own devices. But they will be kind of crisis moments in the play that very often aren't in the script, or that are alluded to in the script, must have happened in order for the script to take place and which needs some investigation. So very often it'll be something that the writer's hidden from us or that we don't see, but something that's crucial for the plot. So recently you just went into the woods with a group of actors who don't know you, many of whom haven't worked with each other, none of whom had ever done the kind of attitude that you do, right? So what is it that you actually do to set them up for this? How do you introduce them to this idea? Well, the first thing is you have to establish flow, and you've got to understand at the beginning of rehearsal the flow in the room is absolutely terrible. The thing that's horrible in the room is the absence of flow, which means that people are very anxious and that communications with each other are quite staccato, and there's a lot of tense laughter, well, first of all, Nick starts with games. We do some games, very simple games. Bit by bit, the actors get used to each other and they laugh a lot doing the games and so on. Because they're children's games, it kind of gives them permission to laugh a bit and to move around and to fool around a bit. Um, and then we move on to more sophisticated movement exercises. And then at the same time as this sort of free fall thing, I'll be getting them to do exercises on the basic structure of syllables and the sounds that have to be made in the play, and to just deconstruct the words and to get us away from meaning. The name of God, get us away, as far away from meaning as we possibly can to begin with, because that'll come in later, and if we go on into what, what does it mean, what does it mean too soon, we're screwed, basically, because it just completely blocks the mind, so you have to come from somewhere else. You know, I've had a lot of lessons to learn, but I remember I was trying to, trying to do some etudes, and I, and I did it too soon, you know. And um, the actor said, well, what happens if we disagree? Um, I realise it's actually quite reasonable to be very anxious about disagreeing, and it's my job really to, to, to create an atmosphere within which they feel they can do that and be happy doing that and becoming free in the room, in the space. And then when the time's ready, you ask them to, if they'll just prepare things for you. And you cross your fingers and hope they don't say, well, what happens if we disagree with each other? <laughs> so I think I've got the timing about right, because you don't want to waste too much time either. But it normally actually works very, very well. It has done for the last 25 years for me like that. And there's always, I think, quite a strong element in cheek-by-jowl companies of many ways of the company becoming a community quite early on, sharing food, sharing a drink together. I mean, I remember sitting down under a tree around an open fire and eating pizza was a really pivotal moment in looking at Macbeth last summer, for example. Like, it's a moment where everything loosens up and the work the next day is is different. And so part of also going away together, I imagine, is getting this flow going. Like, you've got the company living, breathing, eating, chatting 
in a kind of magical place away from the rest of the world. Yes, I think it's worthwhile um, analysing what it means by away from the rest of the world, away from the rest of the world. I mean, one of the things is to get people away from the city. And the city, with all of its structures and fame and success, they, the city can convince us that we're bigger than we are. And the great thing about going to the country or to a remote place is that, in a funny way, nature doesn't give a damn about us. And that's very reassuring, you know? You sort of shrink in the face of nature. And it restores proportion fantastically. I think it was Emerson who said, you know, we like to be in nature because it has no opinion concerning us. I think that's very important. When you feel small like that, you feel held and you feel, oh, it's going to be okay. But when you're, you know, you're, you're coming off from a phone conversation with your agent or whatever, or you've, you're on the metro or whatever it is, you, means you have to get to rehearsal, you can arrive very, very stressed. And it's not, not very good to start rehearsals like that. This just gives us a breather to start. It's amazing what happens sometimes by, the, by taking something away. And I, I hope I've managed to make that point in many different ways, that it's the removal of something very often that gives the power, not the addition of another thing. Just take away the city. The city doesn't do you any good there. And it's incredible how much work and how fast you work and how deep you work under those conditions. So, I mean, as part of the long answer to John is part of doing etudes in a really exciting way is getting the right ecosystem for etudes to happen in. Yes. You can't jump in on day one and expect people to make stuff together. If you haven't got flow going between them, you need to sort of get the gears going. You need to get everybody working as a team before you can get there. But then it also sounds like you're quite light touch with your actual instructions about a team, oh, yes. right? Here's a moment that you want explored oh, yeah. and you want them to just show it to you. Is that right? That's right, yes. I mean, the thing, flow comes first. And it has to be respected. So I have to very much respect flow, and I have to suggest things, as you say, with a light touch, and not indicate too much kind of what I want. But I might talk through a piece of the story. So, for example, in Life is a Dream, uh, the central character, Sigismundo, is imprisoned in a tower. Um, and we slowly discover why he's been imprisoned in the tower. And he's discovered by Rosaura, who's part of a very, very complicated plot, and she ends up in Poland coming across this tower. Sigismundo's in that tower with his prisoner, Clotaldo, and I wanted them to do an etude for me of what it's like to be a prisoner. And many things emerged from that that were very surprising. Um, one of the things is how attached, of course, you become to your prisoner. And you're screaming to be free, but part of you, of course, doesn't want to be free. And the, and the play's very much about his chains, and, you know, he has a, a, an ambivalent relationship to those chains, you know. Um, anyway, that's what we explored. And it was quite... They did some very strong etudes of the daily life of looking after this guy and making sure that he doesn't get out, making sure that nobody sees him. He's keeping this guy's this terrible secret in this secret tower and what that experience might be. And they did it really well and it, quite searingly. I think what's so brave about this is also for you as a director, you seem to be identifying the moments where you don't necessarily have an answer or if you think if you that you do have an answer to what's going on in the moment, keeping it out of the space in which you're talking to the actors, like letting yourself be in a state of not knowing, of being surprised, of not having to be the kind of director who has got a ready-cooked answer to every single question but is leaving gaps for your own curiosity and also handing over authorship to the actors as well and saying, 
you're going to have the best ideas about this. Yes, or they're going to have different ideas. I mean, I, the subject of the attitudes are things about which I can't know, and they're normally things that are important in the story, but the um, author hasn't given us and hasn't had time to give us. So it'll be like, what is life like in that tower? And I could talk, you know, endlessly about what it's like to be a prisoner, imagining, you know, from all the books I've read. And, but, you know, it doesn't do any good. You've actually got to do it to, to feel it. That's the very important thing. The other important practical ingredient to putting an attitude together mm-hmm. seems to be time. You know, not saying you've got to give me something in 20 minutes, but then oh, no, you go away and, you don't, and we don't come back until they say come back. The, one of the reasons why it's great of the woods is that it's severed from the main rehearsal period. And so that Times Winged Chariot isn't hurrying near them and they're not in a sort of deck when we open in six weeks' time a sort of slow hub of panic or how's this going to be used and how can we make this clear and what will this mean so it's a sort of island away from that when we can explore things and then put them together and if it can be severed from the main rehearsal period that's much much better because it means that people are much freer and when we're free we can take responsibility and when that happens much more extraordinary things can happen let's also think about the flip side of this question which is about what can get in the way of an attitude being really live and exciting and exploratory? One thing we've mentioned before with the way that you like to set up attitudes is as few words as possible is really helpful so that the actors aren't having to basically improvise a script on the spot. They're just looking at the actual human interaction that's going on. So no words seems to be a helpful piece of guidance. Are there any other things that are, are helpful structures that stop the actors getting in the way of themselves when they put an attitude together? I think it's important, as few words as possible, because normally we've got a shed load of words to put on stage, and the last thing we need is more words. And frankly, the last thing we need is more ideas, because normally these wonderful plays are full of ideas. You don't need another idea to help you do Life is a Dream or Macbeth. You know, you, you need to see what's there. But what you kind of need is to inhabit somehow those experiences. And I'd say to the actors to, to know that they don't know and just imagine what that might be like. But, you know, they do it naturally. That's the incredible thing that we've discovered this, this time in particular, is that you take the pressure off. It's amazing what's there, that the pressure just conceals. They don't really have to do... You don't really have to do very much at all. But what I have to do is not control. If I've learned anything over my years as a director, is to just control less, or rather to choose more carefully what I don't control. Because to begin with, I wanted to control everything. It would be very clever. I think I just think that less and less. And my, I've let my hands relax and, and try and go for the few things that really do matter. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I really enjoy not being clever with a play sometimes. Yeah, exactly. When you get to sit back and let it astound you. But that does involve letting go of the reins a bit, which is, is quite, also quite a scary thing to do, letting go of surety. Yes, but that's scary in life as well, you know, that we just have to let go of things because in the end we're going to lose everything, so we might as well start practising. So if we were to sum up an answer for John and his question, mm, mm. in how do you set up an attitude? What are the kind of questions and prompts and, and provocations? It seems to be, firstly, make sure you've got the right environment to do an attitude in. Make sure you've got a yeah. company in flow. Yeah. Make sure they're ready to work in this way. Mm. And let that take time. Sure. And let it be the right conditions. And then identify something which bothers you. Yeah. And get out of the room. 
and get out of the room. And I think you should let the attitude tell you what it's about, really. I mean, it's a bit silly saying, well, I want to do this attitude because I want to discover this and this and this. I don't think like that, because you don't need to know all that, and it'll get in the way of things, and you'll, you'll start rushing to meaning too soon. As I've said in earlier podcasts, there are many things that happen off stage that are really important for what happens on stage, so it's very good to stage them sometimes so that you investigate them. But this is something else. The attitude is something else. It's to do with a moment in history, something that's crucial for the plot, like for example, the giving up of the baby, like, for example, the imprisonment of Sigismundo. And, you know, it's mentioned in in the play, kind of intellectually, it sort of goes past. But you need to think, wait, 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 what, 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 wait, wait, stop there, stop there. When you read the text, you, you need to develop a hunch, you need to develop a strong sense of what's not being said, what's not being shown, what can't be shown, what's important that maybe we can't show in the play, but we need to somehow live it, because it's going to have a huge effect on what happens on stage. And we need to inhabit it somehow. And it's the unknown that's the strongest bit. It's the bit you don't know that matters more than the bit you do. Fantastic. Well, thanks to John. And thanks to you, Declan. Thank you, John. I hope that solves something for you, helps you a bit. And uh, I can't wait to see how this latest venture into the woods does play out on Life is a Dream later this year. And thanks very much for all your advice, Declan. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, then head on over to the Cheek by Jowl website or wherever you get your podcasts to find more seasons of gems from Declan and Nick. The music you're hearing now was composed by Sergei Chekrashov for Cheek by Jowl's production of Three Sisters. Join us next week as we answer more of your questions. <laughs> <laughs>